Have you ever gone through life just going through your normal day? And this question pops up in your mind. Here it is. What's wrong with people? (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? You're just going through life and you're just sitting there. What's wrong with people? I just spent a weekend with a bunch of guys at our church at a men's retreat, and there are multiple times, and ladies, I'm sure, if you've ever been surrounded by men, my poor wife probably asks us all the time, just looks at what happened when you just put a bunch of men together, and ladies, you got to be thinking, what is wrong with people? Maybe it's when you drop your kids off at school. The traffic, the driving, people getting out of the cars in the middle of traffic and people cutting over four lanes thinking that they're the only ones that are late for school. Have you ever been dropping your kids off at school and you just scratch your head, you're thinking, what is wrong with people? While back, I had the privilege of watching a Chino Valley Unified School District board meeting. (laughs) You already know where I'm going, don't you? The way that students show disrespect to adults, the way adults show disrespect to school board members, the way school board members show disrespect to parents. I'm sitting there watching this on my phone on this pool deck, and I'm just scratching my head wondering what is wrong with people. As I watch crime statistics climb, as I watch morality decline, as I hear false teaching and people just being distracted by all sorts of kooky things in my head, I'm just wondering what is wrong with people. Man, if you've ever gone through life and you look at culture and you're like, man, Brian, I don't know what's wrong with people. You're going to love this next passage. I want to invite you to join me in Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me catch you up on the context of this passage. First three chapters, Paul has been working hard to help us see ourselves as God sees us. If you are saved, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Paul says you are a saint. You are an instrument of God set apart from this world, empowered with this spirit to be a reflection of his glory. Paul says that's you. If you are a believer, if the work of God is at work in your life, you are a saint. You don't have to die for You don't have to do three miracles. You're a saint. And by the way, you didn't earn that position. You didn't achieve that position. You didn't buy that position. It was given to you. It was hand-delivered to you by the grace of God. Let me remind you of something Paul said in Ephesians 2. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. He continues and he says, For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would simply walk in them. First three chapters, Paul is working hard to help Christians back then and Christians today see ourselves for who we are. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a saint. You have been set apart from culture, empowered with the Spirit of God to be an instrument and reflection of God's glory in this kooky culture. So after three chapters, Paul then shifts gears. We get into chapter four. Paul begins to say, now as a saint, here's what your life should look like. 
Once you recognize your identity in Christ, here's what you should be about. And he started out this way. He said, therefore, because of everything that I've said in chapters 1 through 3, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I'm begging you, I'm on my knees. I cannot exhort you enough. Please walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. It's in that same context that Paul continues his message in chapter 4 and how we should be living our lives in a kooky culture. Begins it this way, Ephesians chapter 4, we're in verse 17 now. Ephesians 4, 17. Read with me, Uh, not out loud. I keep saying that and then in my head I'm like, okay, I got to be clear on that. Read along with me in your head. (laughs) Oh, I'll figure that out. All right. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now here's the first thing I see. In this section, Paul just gives this great answer to a powerful question. What's wrong with the world? Man, you want to know how kooky California became kooky California. Paul explains it right here. Look what he says. He says, he says they walk in the futility of their mind. The futility of their mind. Futility is something that is useless or empty. And I love how one old preacher defined futility. It's using silly methods to reach a meaningless goal. Isn't that good futility? Using silly methods to reach a meaningless goal. Man, you want to define culture. You want to understand what's wrong with them. Futility. Man, they are all about using silly methods to get to a meaningless goal. Here's some examples. In culture, right? Financial strength, financial power, our investments, our savings accounts, our 401ks, our 401ks, our 429s, and all of these accounts, we measure economy, we measure our worth, we measure our success in what we own in this life. Our bank accounts, our house size, the number of cars, and how, whether they're electric or internal combustion, we use all of these to somehow measure our success But look what Jesus says. He says, don't store up yourself treasures on earth. Or moth, rust, destroy, or thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Where thieves do not break in and steal. Man, you want to know for utility? Putting all of our hope and our financial strength... God says, man, a little bug this big can consume your entire house. Why do you put your faith in that? Invest in the kingdom of God that's eternal, that's not going to burn up at the end of time. How about another one? Man, how much do we fret and worry and focus and strategize on how to have control of our governmental leaders, right? Oh, if we only, if our guy wins or our gal wins, if our party wins, if our team wins, now surely there'll be peace. And we fret and we strategize and we invest and we focus. 
But look what Paul says. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. He continues and he says, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and when they have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, Paul says. And Peter says this too. God is in control of all authorities on earth. He holds them all in the palm of his hands. Well, you want to know the definition of futility? Exercising all of your will and strength, trying to control something that God already controls. Silly methods to get to meaningless ends. Here's another one. How about reputation? And we work hard to be the best at something, don't we? As parents, we want our kids to be the best at something. Our reputations, everything, we want to be number one. But look at what Jesus says in the book of Mark. He says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question him, what were you talking about? You remember this story? Jesus just talked about how he was going to deliver himself for all mankind. He says, what were you guys talking about behind me? And they, they kept silent from the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. No, we're going to be number one. No, we're going to be number one. We're going to be number one. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. Man, you want to talk about using a silly method to reach a meaningless goal building yourself up and propping yourself up on the backs of others. It's a silly method and a meaningless goal where God says, you want to be the most influential? You want to be the greatest? You want to be an influential instrument? Serve. Be known for service, not for greatness. Paul says, you want to know what's wrong with this world? Man, they walk, they live, their day-to-day life is based on the futility of their mind, using silly methods to achieve meaningless goals. And you might say, well, Brian, why? Why are they there? Why do they do that? Paul continues. Look at verse 18. He says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. He says they're being darkened in their understanding. That term darkened means to be blinded, to have your eyes covered, to have an inability to recognize truth. You want to know, Paul says, you want to understand them? Why they live their life using silly methods to achieve meaningless goals because they're being darkened. By the way, that term, it's in the passive, meaning that someone or something is doing it to them. They're being blinded. Their eyes are being covered. They're not able to discern and recognize truth, and someone's doing it to them. You might be saying, well, Brian, who is that? Put your thumb in Ephesians. Flip over to the left a few books. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. I'll share something in... I want you to turn there because I want you to be able to go back here and remind yourself why is culture like they are? 
Why is the world just like a hamster on a wheel, just never getting anywhere but trying super hard? Paul says they're being darkened. They're being blinded. Their eyes are covered, unable to see the truth. Why is that? Look at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, we talked about that, right? Who is that? Satan, right? He's the God of this world. He is the authority of this domain that God has allowed him to have, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You want to know why they're like that? Paul says they're being darkened. They're being blinded by Satan. And you might think, oh, well, Brian, then we all need to go to Texas. By the way, there's people being blinded there. Tennessee, South Carolina, Arizona, blinded people everywhere. Let me give you a little hope. Verse 5 Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as our bondservants for Christ's sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you see that? Satan is blinding the eyes of culture. And who is God empowered to change it? Let me read it again. God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts. Why? To give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I mean, Satan is blinding the eyes of culture, but you. You're the one who can shine a light and help them recognize the truth of the world. Let's get back to Ephesians. Paul is in the midst of describing, answering the question, what's wrong with culture? Said they're in the futility of their mind. They're using silly methods to achieve meaningless goals. And here's why. They're being darkened in their understanding. Satan is pulling the blinds over their eyes. They're unable to see truth and look as a result of that. He says they're ignorant because Satan has pulled the blinders over their eyes. They're unable to recognize truth. Paul says as a result, they're ignorant. They lack knowledge. They lack understanding. They lack awareness of truth. Paul's like, come on, you got to see that, right? How do all these intelligent, highly educated people not see the truth? Satan's blinded them. Because they're blinded, they're ignorant, they're unaware of the truth. And I sing this week, man, isn't that something that Jesus witnessed? There was a time in his ministry in Matthew 9 where Jesus is, the gospel describes Jesus walking through cities, teaching, healing people. And look how it describes Jesus' attitude. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Why? It says, they were distressed. They were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. 
Man, he's walking through life. He's like, oh, these people are ignorant. They're blinded. They're dispirited. They're distressed. They're lost like sheep without a shepherd. They're just wandering the world in the futility of their mind, using silly methods to achieve meaningless goals. And as a result, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in his harvest again. Just in case, as we're talking about what's wrong with them, you're building hopelessness in your heart. Don't. All of this is given to you because you're a saint. You're an instrument of God. Set apart from this world and yet left in kooky California. Why? To reflect the light of truth to a people that you should have compassion on because Satan has blinded their eyes. They're unable to see truth and so they're going through life ignorant, unaware of what awaits them. Back in Ephesians 4, look what else. They're in the futility of their mind because they're blinded by Satan. As a result, they go through life ignorant, unaware of what awaits them. Because of that, they have hardness in their heart. That phrase, hardness of heart, it describes something that was once pliable, but it's now hard as a rock. It can be tissue that's been broken so many times, and the scar tissue has built up around it, and so it took a once pliable organ that could bend and move in harmony with everything else is now, now scarred over and just stiff and hardened. It describes clay. When you get clay out of the, or Play-Doh out of the can, or clay out of the bag, at first it's pliable. Leave it out in the air. Leave it out in the, just in the sun for a day, and all of a sudden something that's pliable becomes hard as a rock. That's how Paul's describing them. Their hearts. It was once pliable. They were once formable, but now Satan has blinded their eyes. They're going through life in ignorance, and now they're just wounded and broken to the point where their heart is just hardened. Not only that, and he said, look at verse 19, and they having become callous. A term callous, they cease to feel pain, loss, or conviction. Their heart and mind have grown numb to the natural responses of life. And they're callous. What used to give them joy doesn't. What used to cause them pain doesn't. All of a sudden, they become numb to the normal responses of life. And things that should trouble them don't. Things that should fulfill them don't. They go through life numb. And look what happens as a result. They become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Because they're numb, they're, all, they're looking for something new. And that continues the spiral of evil and wickedness and immorality, looking for something that is fulfilling for a desensitized, hardened, and calloused heart and trace all of that back. Why? Because Satan has blinded them. 
Paul says, you want to know what's wrong with this world? You want to know why everything's in disarray? Why everything's a mess? Why families are imploding? Our kids and youth are searching for something fulfilling. Why all sorts of authority and government are just plumb full of corruption to where no one on either side really trusts anybody. That's just our culture. You look all over the rest of the world, oftentimes it's nuttier than what we have here. Why? Satan's blinded their eyes. Hopeless picture. Why is Paul sharing this hopeless picture? Because Paul has another question he wants you to consider. His first question, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with them? His second question is even more frightening. Okay, that's what's wrong with them. So what's wrong with you? Satan blinded them. They live in the futility of their minds. Satan blinded them. They're ignorant. They're unable to discern truth. And as a result, their hearts are scarred over and their lives are numb. And that drives them into this hell-bent pursuit of something that fulfills them. And they're like sheep without a shepherd. But what is wrong with you? Look back at verse 17. Paul says this. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. Paul's like, okay, we know what's wrong with them. Satan blinded them. What's wrong with you? How come you're walking like they are? Can I remind you for a minute? He's talking to a church, the church of Ephesus, one of the greatest churches in their day. As if it's possible to be a great church filled with good people who love Jesus, whose lives resemble them. Paul says, I say this, and I affirm together with the Lord. That term affirm means to assert this truth. I insist. Paul's like, I'm done messing around. You're a saint. Stop living like them. Stop living like they are. And he doubles down, verse 20, again, begins with my favorite word in all of Scripture, but I circle them, A, because I think it's cool, but B, because they're there for a reason, to let you know that we're shifting directions. Man, the world is going in this way. They live in futility. They use silly method to reach for meaningless goals because Satan's blinded them. And as a result, they're ignorant of how to go. And now they're just wounded and calloused and scarred all over. And they're just looking for something that's fulfilling. That's them, not you. Paul says, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that should not define you. 
You learned Christ. You're not blinded. You learned Christ. And let, let me make sure you understand. Jesus or Paul isn't saying you learned about Christ. There's all sorts of people who know all sorts of things about Jesus. You've learned more than things about him. You've mastered that truth. You have received that power. Flip over one page, or it's one page of my Bible, to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Let me remind you of what Paul taught us a couple chapters ago about the work of God. Paul said, that life that they live shouldn't define you. Why? Verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, man, when you were at your worst, God loved you. And look at this. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus. Paul said that you should be living completely different than them. You're not blinded by Satan. You don't live in futility. You're not blinded by Satan. You've learned Christ. God plucked you out of the darknesses of this world. He showed you the grace of his glory, the truth of his word. Man, you shouldn't be living that way. Look at what he says, uh, Paul says in Romans 6. I put it up here for you. Romans 6. He said, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism in the death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Later he says this, for he who has died is freed from sin. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, See, you shouldn't be walking like the world. You want to know what's wrong with them? Paul went through it. Now Paul's question is, so what's wrong with you? You've learned Christ. You're not blinded. Back in Ephesians 4, in 22, verse 22, he says this, because you've learned Christ in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Man, that old self that you've just kept alongside of you, it's dragging you down. It's an anchor to your soul. It's continuing to be corrupted and deceived. You need to lay it aside. A term, lay aside. You should have thrown it off like a heavy burden. You have discarded that old life as useless. You should have stowed it away and buried it a long time ago. Man, that old life that's blinded by, the, by Satan, you got to th throw it off like a heavy burden that's dragging you down. Now look at 23. And that you 
be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And as a result, you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. You need to put off. You need to lay aside. You need to cut that off and bury it, that old self. It's dragging you down. It's in conflict to who you are. And you need to put on your new self, that new creation that God has saved you for and given to you that Jesus died for so that you can have it. And I love that phrase, put on. Put on doesn't mean just you put on some robe. A term put on means you're dressing up in your Sunday best. You're getting gussied up. You're taking off that old man and you're putting on that Christian tuxedo and you are making sure that you are in pristine condition. No more holy shoes. No jeans with frayed knees. Put on the new self. That new self, it is just this supreme condition, gussied up in prime condition. You need to prepare yourself for that life. That new self means to describe something that is previously unknown, something impossible for you to understand before who Jesus was to you. Put on your new self, something that you couldn't even imagine before Jesus because you were blinded. You're in the futility of your mind. Man, the life that you're putting on is completely different. It's completely changed. You're living different from everybody else. And you're striving for goals that no one else understands except other people who are committed to Christ. And people are going to look at you like you're crazy. Because they're blinded. You're not. How do we achieve it? Verse 23, Paul gives us a hint by the renewing in the spirit of your mind. You got to think different. You need to see different. You need to understand things differently. You don't define truth by them. They're blinded. You don't allow someone with no sight to describe creation and what they see. They're blind. You're not. Paul begins this section helping you see culture the way God does. Man, they're spinning their wheels out there, but that's because they're blinded. As a result, they're ignorant. As a result, they're numb and they're callous and they give themselves away to all sorts of uselessness, not you. You've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. You've been handpicked, created by God for good works to be a reflection of the light of Christ so that those people who are blinded in the darkness can see who Jesus is. I guess my question is, what's an area in life you need to put off? What's an area of your life you need to lay aside? That's your old self. That's not your new self. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you need to approach your marriage differently than culture. 
Marriage is not social construct to give you tax breaks. Marriage is a union designed by God to bring two people into oneness and be a brighter reflection of his glory and an example of the unity of God. Your marriage is a divinely inspired institution. Maybe it's your goals. Maybe you're too hung up in what you achieve in this life for yourself. What do you need to put on? Maybe you need to elevate the expectation that you have for your life as a Christian, someone who has been saved by Christ, someone who is a saint. Maybe you need to dress up a little more for your life because that's what God calls you to do. You're no longer a weakened vessel of sin. You're a redeemed instrument of God, filled with his power, set aside from the world so that you might show people who are blinded by Satan the truth of Jesus Christ. I'd like to challenge you to consider that this week. I have. One thing you need to put off, lay aside, One thing you know is being an anchor to your soul and eroding at the foundation of your heart. One thing you need to put on. Just in case you're wondering, oh, Brian, I don't know. I don't know what to focus on. Paul gives us a few examples of things that Christians in their day struggled with. Just in case you're wondering what you should take off and put on, Paul says, let me give you some examples And these are things that the church in Ephesus struggled with. This might shock you. Look how he starts. Verse 23. Therefore, lay aside falsehood. Quit lying. What? I thought this was the church of Ephesus. This was like the favorite church of Paul. They had this powerful ministry. They transformed the economy of their culture. Paul says, yep. They're a bunch of liars, too. Look, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. By the way, falsehood is used to describe any lie that benefits you at the expense of someone else. Quit lying in a way that benefits you and harms someone else. Stop it. And look why. He said you were... We're members of one another. You remember how we're supposed to be talking to one another. Let's look up a few verses. Chapter 4, verse 15. We're supposed to be speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is how we grow up on all aspects into him. You want to grow as a Christian? You want us to grow as a church? Paul says, stop lying. Start speaking truth. You guys are a member of the body of Christ. You're one body. Quit lying. Here's another one. Verse 26. Again, just examples of things you might want to consider letting go of. Putting off or putting on. Verse 26. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Paul says, hey, there's such a thing as righteous anger. Abuse of kids, kicking dogs for the joy of it, 
Like there's things in this world that it makes sense to be angry about. Paul says, okay, if you're anger, now I got to say majority of things are angry about, it's not righteous, but let's just, on those areas you have righteous anger, look what Paul says. In your anger, do not sin. How do we do that? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You have righteous anger, deal with it, let it go. You have righteous anger, you see things in culture that just boil you up, do something about it, let it go. Why? Unresolved anger gives Satan an opportunity. Unresolved anger, have you noticed unresolved anger kind of gives a, an open path to even more egregious sins? Ever wonder why God says vengeance is mine? I don't know about you, when I go to bed angry, I start dreaming up all sorts of evil, wicked things that I could do to you, that you deserve. Anyone else as broken and devious as me? Darren, I know you are. Thank you for being honest. I just happen to look and I'm like, all right. There's two of us. Paul says, you want to know something you need to lay aside? If you find yourself angry and you're just thinking of ways you can get back to them, you better put that off. Otherwise, that's going to take you down a path of even more egregious sins in your life. Paul's talking to a good church filled with good people who love Jesus. Quit lying. Quit harboring bitterness. Here's another one. Look, look at this, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. Man, I love this. Paul, looking at the church. Yeah, I know you guys. Little thieves. <laughs> Paul. You little thieves. Get to work. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who is need. You're like, ooh, that's a bad church. Paul telling them, stop stealing. There's a recent survey coming out asking churches, asking Christians in church, whether they steal. By the way, that term steal, klepto, means to take something that isn't yours, that betters, betters your life, right? Top three places Christians admit to stealing. Ready for this? This is just for fun. Number three, hotels. Number three place that Christians steal, hotels. Blankets, pillows, towels, robes, those cheap little sandals that they put in the closet. Yeah, Mike, I know you got some of those. <laughs> Number three, places Christians say, yeah, I steal. Hotels. Number two, this one won't surprise you, taxes. Yeah, I lie. I cheat on my taxes. I don't want my money. I don't want God's resources to go to those corrupt people. We make it all right in our head, don't we? Number two, when pushed, Christians are like, yeah, I do that. Number one place Christians admit to stealing. Ready for this? Workplace theft. Man, Christians are all upset about all the crash and grab stuff that's going on, right? Number one loss of businesses, not those guys. Employees just helping themselves. Pencils. Pads of paper, computers, office equipment. 
time, time cards. We look at them, we hear Paul's like, well, that must be a jacked up church. Bunch of thieves in that church. We start pulling Christians in our day, yep, guess what? Bunch of thieves in our church too, I would bet. Paul says, here's some examples, things if we want to be a reflection of Christ in their world, hey, there's a reason they're acting that way. What's our reason? Here's this one, 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The term unwholesome, used to describe anything that's rotten, that leads to decay, that can be harmful or rancid, anything that erodes the heart and soul of someone else, Paul says, none of that. Watch how you talk to one another, in here and out there. Look how your word should be used, only such a word as is good for edification, building up, strengthening, fostering growth. Quit tearing everybody down and be focused on putting everyone up. Proverbs gives us a couple good words. It's not just Paul. Solomon says this, a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perversion in it crushes the spirit. How about this one, Proverbs 18? Death and life are in the power of a tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Man, the tongue has the ability to just erode someone's soul and empower someone's life. By the way, husbands and wives, I want to tell you, in my experience, the words of a spouse cut deeper than anyone else. Man, nowhere else this is more important than in your marriage and in the hearts of your kids. Let's wrap it up. Paul ends it this way. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, just in case we haven't hit anything in you yet, Paul just gives this catch-all. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Question, what do you need to take off? What do you need to put on? In this section, Paul says, I can tell you what's wrong with that, with the world. They're employing silly methods to try to get to meaningless goals. Why? Because they're blinded by Satan. As a result, they live in ignorance. They don't see the truth. As a result, they are scarred. They are callous. They are wounded. They are hurting. And they're looking for anything that can scratch that itch and fill their emptiness. Paul's like, them I understand. You I don't. You've been plucked out of darkness and created into a saint of God. Paul says, live it. Take off that old life. Put on the new life. Look at how Paul begins the next chapter. Great summary for us today. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. You want to know the standard for your life? Imitators of God. Nothing less than that. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What should your life look like? Jesus Christ.
who didn't see heaven as something to be held on to, gave it all up, humbled himself to take on the form of his own creation so he could suffer and die in confidence that God would raise him up and give him a name that is above every other name. Knowing that at the end of time, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I guess my question is, what do you think would happen to the Chino Valley? If 1,100 people, CBCC, decided to live their lives as imitators of God, not as people going through life futile in their mind, darkened by Satan, callous and numb by the pain of this world, but as instruments of God, as saints of God, empowered and called to be a reflection of his glory in the darkness of our kooky culture. That's Paul's challenge to them. And that's Paul's challenge to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we as a church, God, many of us here, are, we, we do believe in your power. God, we're here because we know that you first loved us and we have chosen to love you back. God, we are learning about our identity and the powerful call that you've placed in our lives. But God, we confess that for many of us, there's at least one aspect of our life that we more resemble the world than reflect you. So God, I pray that you would speak boldly and clearly to our hearts. Help us to understand one area, one place of our life that we need to stop living like the world and start reflecting your glory. God, for those people who need to humbly confess their brokenness of sin before you, God, I pray you hear them. And then, God, I pray for those people who already know you, may you give them the peace that is beyond human comprehension, a faith that empowers them knowing that God you are able to accomplish far more than we can ask or even imagine according to the power that is already at work in our lives God I pray you fill this body right here with hope not in just what you can heal in our lives in our homes in our church in our community but God what you desire to do through our lives through our homes through our churches, through our communities. God, may you take what we offer and may you use it for your glory.